You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Perth Property Show. My name's Trent Fleskins, your host as always. And what a special episode we have today. For the first time ever, we are talking food and beverage with one of the two golden boys of food and beverage in Western Australia these days. You might not have heard the name Nocturnal, but you've certainly heard of the old synagogue, you've certainly heard of the Beaufort, you've probably been there and you might have been to one of their events over the years. I'm talking to Ross Drennan. Ross, thank you so much for coming in today. Hi Trent, thanks for having me. It's been a long time coming talking about food and beverage, but there's really only one person we can talk to in Perth about success in this space over the last few years, especially with all the risk, all of the hard times that the industry has had even before COVID, Beaufort Street, Leaderville, Subiaco, it's been quiet for a while. You guys seem to have the magic source to have figured out how to attract people for weeks in advance. Obviously, it didn't just start with a decision to start a pub in Fremantle. Your story goes way back earlier than that. What was life like as a kid for you? You got a bit of an accent. You're a yeah. Perth boy? No, well, I was, I was born in South Africa, but I moved over here when I was 13, so I went to high school over here. That's actually where I met my business partner, Drew, playing cricket for a cricket club south of the river, Riverton Rostrada, junior cricket club. Still playing? Um, no, not anymore. Probably had too many beers to, to <laughs> still be playing cricket. I think that's most people when they start getting through it, it's more about the beer than the ball. Yeah, definitely, definitely. No, I still enjoy playing a bit of sport, I'm playing a bit of golf now. You go to Ross Moyant School then? I did, yeah. There you go. Yeah, so, um, yeah, south of the river boy. It's been a interesting journey for us like you said a bit of a roller coaster over the last few years since we started in the pub game but yeah going back to the start well grew up in South Africa father had a recording studio mother was a fashion designer moved over here they decided to give myself and my younger sister a better chance I guess possibly a better life over in Australia which we're very grateful for moving over here yeah look it's been a great place to live this is home if I'm in South Africa they think I'm Australian and if I'm in Australia they still <laughs> notice my accent and yeah. think I'm South African. No, this is home now. You um, didn't start off in FMB, did you? No, didn't. So started off, uh, always liked business, went through school, went to uni, accounting finance, got an internship with Grant Thornton, enjoyed it but probably realised that being stuck in an office and just doing accounting wasn't quite right for me. I had an uncle who had a valuation business back in South Africa, so I went over there, a little bit of work experience, just seeing what he did, enjoyed how he got out, saw some incredible properties, and I thought, oh, this this could be an interesting career path. So, Well, you're out of the office, a place yeah. like South Africa, the beautiful vistas, the I'm, I'm assuming some of the fantastic properties, large format properties as well and a chance to just be amongst the nature there would have been fantastic. The, the one property which just sticks out to me is valuing this huge sugarcane farm for a multinational and yeah, driving all over this farm and hearing them talk about the utility of the land and all the different challenges they had farming it and how long it had been in this company. and It, yeah, it was interesting stuff even though I didn't have the faintest idea anything about sugarcane. Sugar cane, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, I just thought it was fascinating that as a job, he could have to learn that, figure out how to value it. Yeah, came back to Perth, changed the degree, still followed through with the accounting side, but uh, pivoted to do property as well. Fortunately, through another family connection here, they put me on to a company called Egan National Valuers, a valuation firm, commercial work. 
uh, went in there for an interview. They said they'd give me a job while I was still at uni um, as a trainee valuer. Always helpful to get that experience, isn't it? It was brilliant. Working for a firm like that just opened my eyes up to all sorts of different types of property. I've done industrial valuation, I've done commercial valuations, residential. Many pubs? Um, I didn't do too many pubs, everything in between. Towards the end of my career, I was doing aged care and retirement villages. My mentor uh, was a guy called Tim Anderson, who's still a valuer there. They're now called PVA. I'm assuming, though, that was your day job. That was my day job. But you had a hobby on the side. Yeah, so well, look, it all happened. So Drew, my business partner, he was an engineer. Both finishing uni at similar times, went out. He got a job at Wooden Grieve. And then both of us started our careers out, and then the GFC hit. I was on a commission basis, so... I qualified as the GFC hit and it was sort of like sitting around quite a lot and yeah, we, we're not the sort of people who sit around on our hands doing nothing. So back in the uni days, we ran a few fundraising events, mainly for actually the UWA Golf Club actually ran some fundraising events to send everyone over to uni games. A bit so of alcohol involved? There was definitely some alcohol involved. Yeah, some good fun, some good nights there. But um, I suppose that sort of whet the appetite a little bit to running events. And then we were discussing that everyone does New Year's Day events in Perth back then, uh, but there was very little to do on New Year's Eve. So we thought, well, you know, why don't we actually just hold an event for friends, friends of friends? We thought, oh, we'd probably get four, five hundred people if it went well. Well, that's still a pretty big party, Ross. A decent party. And yeah, we approached Matilda Bay Foreshore uh, near UWA which was adjoining, we, we held one of our fundraisers at the uh, rowing club there. Yeah, we thought, oh, this is a great venue. You know, New Year's Eve in Perth, never rains, always nice and warm, outdoor yeah, venue. Yeah, vista of the water, it'd be great. Yeah, so it all started coming together. Like I said, four or 500 people was the goal. It wasn't really about making money. It was just like, oh, you know, this is how much we're willing to risk each. It should break even. Let's It'll have be, a big party. This would be fun. Yeah. And then word just got out, and next thing we sold a thousand tickets. It was completely sold out, and we had a big event to organise. And whilst we had full time jobs, but fortunately, yeah, we had a bit of time. And I think that's where the the name Nocturnal sort of came about because we were like, well, we're going to have to work in the evenings to get things done, and that's that's sort of where Nocturnal came from. And what year was this? Uh, this was 2010. So we're 12 years yeah. back here, and this yeah. is your first event where you're actually putting your, your balls on the line financially, yeah. and you sell out. It's a pretty good start, isn't it? Yeah, it was brilliant. Yeah, the day came, uh, everyone came down, awesome evening. Uh, the weather was brilliant, and yeah, people were having such a good time. We were running the bars ourselves. We didn't outsource anything. It was pretty funny. At, at one point in the evening, we ran out of change in the bars, so we just said, "Oh, well, that's it. Everything's just five bucks." Yeah, you know, <laughs> we, we know beer cost, cost yeah. about three bucks, so if it's five, we make your money still. But everyone who attended thought this was just Christmas, getting cheap beers yeah. and, and having a great time. And yeah, the, the event went really, really well. And then yeah, from there it grew to four and a half thousand sold out in record time the next year and sort of sat around that as a maximum capacity given the venues we had. And yeah, ran for 11, 12 years. It stopped, um, we stopped that event just with COVID. That uh, wasn't the only event you were running though? No, and then yeah, things really changed for us when we um, got into Oktoberfest. We started off first year Oktoberfest, we did a joint venture with the, stu- uh, the Curtin Student Guild and we ran it in Supreme Court Gardens. Yeah, the event itself ran pretty well, but um, it lost money first year. And what do you think happened? What did you get wrong? Events are really tough 
the first year. It's it's a new concept. People haven't heard of it before, so you don't have that social proof or, or people going around. But you have to prepare with putting the money on the line to you do. if it does sell out or you've you've got all the facilities there. You do. And when you run outdoor events and you've got to bring everything in from fencing, power generators, uh, the like, you need um, a good amount of people just to cover your costs. And then the money comes in when you can scale them right up. So as much as we did lose money first year, we thought that we'd run a good enough event for people to for this to catch on, I guess. We were pretty bullish about the future years. And yeah, then the next year happened and it went from four and a half thousand people over two days to well over 10,000 people in one day. So you're the reason that the whole of the city is filled with drunken German looking people <laughs> over the course of a day. The costume shops love us. That's right, I've already yeah. thought so. But yeah, and then, um, so that went really well. And then we yeah, we decided to take the plunge and try and expand that event over east. And, and that's when our business went to the next level when we started running events in Melbourne, Sydney, Adelaide. It takes a pretty brave person with, I assume, minimal connections over east, minimal understanding yeah. of where and who your market is other than the general demographics, minimal understanding of who you're going to rent the space from, who you're going to rent the facilities from, how you're going to market it. It's pretty ballsy, Ross. Yeah, look, it was scary at times, not knowing anyone over there, so not having that base of people you have. That groundswell of people who go, let's go to this event because we're mates. Yeah, so from that side, it was difficult, but we kept telling ourselves we're in the same country. I'm pretty sure people in Melbourne and Sydney like a drink as much as we do. For some reason, there's no big Oktoberfest over there either, so why don't we give it a go? And... We took the blueprint over here. We knew we had to speak to the councils. We had to speak to the police. We had to speak to licensing. The suppliers were pretty much the same across the country, so that was straightforward. Yeah, we just went through the processes, and every single place is different. You learn that, and I suppose we'll get to planning issues later, but, you know, like planning, every council is different. They have their little things they really pick on or interested in. and all those sort of things, yep. Their so, own time frames. Yeah, so we had to learn and work our way through all those things. But yeah, it was amazing. Um, the first one we moved into was Melbourne. It sold out in a week. Where'd um, you hold it? Uh, Birung Ma, which is on the banks of the river, just behind Fed Square as you walk towards the MCG. It's a great venue. And how um, many people attended that one? We got 8,500 there, uh, which is max capacity. And we actually we sold that out and we put on a Sunday show as well. So over the two days, we probably sold a few less on the Sunday, but um, it's probably about 13,000 over the, the two days. And how far did it grow? That event just sold out every year. As soon as we had the Melbourne success, we thought, oh, we've got to do this in Sydney, so we moved to Sydney. And then the next year, Adelaide, so we just added a city per year. It's been going ever since it's in its 12th year. Well, congratulations, mate. I mean, not many people have been able to, one, pull off the longevity of the event side of things, but two, the national footprint. There's so many festivals that have come and gone. But we're at a similar in- vintage where, you know, it used to be the big day out, the Future Fest, the V mm. Fest, Stereosonics, they've all come and gone. And I think the model that you've created where you're not spending a quarter of a million dollars on a massive star and just giving somewhere for people to have a good time is the model mm. of the future. It seems to be the way to go, not being a, an event specialist myself. But I guess it would have been a massive undertaking having, I guess, state-based staff as well. Yep. But also would have, uh, and this leads to the property side of the conversation, uh, helped you build not only a capital base, I guess, to be able to acquire your own business premises as well, but understand the financials of something 
far more sticky and that is actually running pubs and restaurants and those sort of things so you've i guess you've understood who your clientele is what they like what they like to drink what they like to eat and then at what point firstly did you i guess quit your day job and then secondly decide we're actually going to start a a pub here i quit my day job gee i think it was about five years ago now it just started to get a little, little bit too much with the business on the side on top of that i realized that if we wanted to grow the business further well then it's definitely going to be too much you need to free up 40 hours a week yeah business wise the events side you know you only get paid so many days a year Mm. so especially when you quit your day job which uh, all of a sudden you don't get that paycheck yeah it's very (laughs) Um, chunky income yeah so all of a sudden you're relying on those few days a year and then if it rains on one of those days well that can cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars or covid yeah or covid i would have hated to only have had the events business <laughs> through COVID. Mm. Yeah, I think the key was because we also had that day job, Drew and I never spent the money we were earning in the business. We just left in the business and put it back in. Capitalised. And as a result, you know, we built a pretty good capital base there, which was good because we did have the odd event which didn't go so well and, you know, rained off and and the like. And then, you know, you suck it up, you pay your your bills. Pay your bills, yeah. And um, people respect you for that. Then coming out of that, well, this capital did continue to build up. A couple of years, say, before the old synagogue came along, Drew and I had probably been asked the question, you know, would you ever get into bricks and mortar? The answer was always no. And we, we, we'd look around. You know, times are pretty tough in hospitality. Well, let's, let's talk about it. Mount Lawley, Beaufort Street, yeah. you've got Oxford Street. So Drew and I actually, yeah, we bought a house together when we moved out of home and in 2013. We had a little batch pad in West Leaderville. The second we moved in there, we just watched Subiaco just, you know, go Die. from being a place yeah. where it was humming to just absolutely died. Obviously, the footy left. It was scary times to look at bricks and mortar venues. Obviously, we didn't have any real idea on how they operated but it was evident everyone was talking about how it's difficult out there retail trading conditions are difficult uh, obviously the whole of perth went through a long downturn a lot of the buildings were owned by old money who were happy just to leave it empty rather than drop the rent and exactly. make it workable exactly yeah we were not looking for it but being in property always being keen on property it was always keeping an eye on properties which come up for sale and and the like and saw the the old synagogue come up and uh, so how on you've decided that your first foray into bricks and mortar owning a restaurant pub venue was to get into a heritage building with religious background yeah some people would say you're crazy ross <laughs> no definitely look i think i'm lucky i've got a business partner who's very keen to have a go at things being a valuer you're probably pretty good at doing a swot analysis and figuring out how many reasons why not to do something but um we've got the balance there between us but yeah, it, it just was such an interesting building. And running events, we always looked at ways to capture people's imagination, keep them entertained, designing event sites which, you know, you start off with a rectangular piece of grass and you've got to figure out how to design the site to make people walk in different ways just to keep them entertained and, and not get bored. When we saw that building, we walked around it and down these weird little hidden staircases and the like. We just thought, oh, this is just so unique. You're never ever going to be able to build this again or find this again. How um, long was it on the market? Were you competing with other people for it who had other ideas for it? It was on the market for a while. It had some major issues. The previous owner had done a lot of work without approvals. 
Um, and then what was it beforehand? So it had been used as a restaurant probably 20 years prior, but then it probably sat vacant for the best part of 10 years. And they'd started to build a hotel at the rear, so they'd excavated the basement, and they'd done a fair bit of repair work on the actual synagogue, and it's actually two state heritage-listed buildings. It's the synagogue, and then it's the Beers buildings out the front, which was quite aptly named. Um, William Beer owned, owned the buildings in the 20s, I believe. Helpful for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was quite cool, actually, when we uncovered this old sign saying Beers buildings on it. But yeah, walking around it, it, it was just something where we like lots of little spaces. We like the idea that people can have a journey and walk through various entries, see different things and find different areas to have a different hospitality experience. And then we looked at it, obviously, numbers-wise. There were some massive concerns of the structural integrity of the building, so that probably put off a lot of other potential buyers. How old is it? It was finished in 1902. Wow. So it'd be one of the oldest buildings going around in Perth. Most have been knocked down, unfortunately. Yeah. We looked at it, tracked down the engineer, did the previous work for the previous owner, got him to do a report for us, and then we weren't as scared anymore about the structural integrity. Went to the auction, got passed in, negotiated, and eventually got the deal over the line. By this point, you're all in, I assume. Yeah. You know, absolutely buzzing to get your hands on this property. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, We we were excited. But... At that point, we were still thinking, look, this is a good property play, assuming it doesn't cost too much to build or to get up and running. And then from the business side, we were like, well, no, let's, we're not going to just lease this building out. We're in hospitality. Let's give this a go. And we thought, oh, well, look, if we can run a business here, which at least breaks even, the property play will still be a good play. Mm. You've given uh, it long, value. Long term. We're, we're on a, a key intersection at the top of the Cappuccino Strip and long term this would be a good property to own but you didn't just dip your toe in the water here ross what Mm -hmm. you've done is create one of the leading hospitality venues in perth now it wasn't just a little pub that you opened up a bar and hoped people would rock up you've clearly invested some serious capital in and serious time and ideas into making this a special place regardless of whether it was going to be a success or not I suppose one of the experiences we've had out of the events game and sort of touched on it earlier when you play on a, a very small scale event your margin is small and that break-even point you're always pretty close to the line whereas when we started running events for 15,000 people you know we could scale them back to five and limit your losses whereas if we aim for a five and you only got three well you're going to lose a fair bit of money Mm. so going into the bricks and mortar game and venues you know we were never interested in looking at a small bar because we'd be too close to the line always always just above break even you have to have a, a good week or a good month or a good year just to keep it running yeah so well you think you look at a place like the camfield for example some people go that place is massive how would you ever fill it out but they do if you get the right formula they can and i'm assuming at any point in time that they're filling it out or getting remotely close they're making some serious money based on the scale of it oh once it's built built. you've got to have some serious balls to take on something that big and which the guys have done and and I'm, sh- I'm sure they've probably exceeded their expectations because it couldn't have gone too much better mm. for them. But, um, and yes, look, same for us. So we decided to split a big venue up into four smaller venues because we thought it's easier to get four smaller spaces humming. and Four themes? Four different themes. Four offerings. Appealing yeah. to different demographics. Yeah, it was 
probably kind of hedging our bets a little bit, but it was also strategic that we realised that younger people go out on the weekends, but slightly older people will look for a place to go have dinner on Monday, Tuesday. And if we've got a building here, well, let's try use it seven days a week. Mm. So you're diversifying it around, yeah. and if one doesn't work, well, you can probably shut it down, keep the other three going, and revamp it four months later. Yeah, and then food... Except you didn't have to. No, we didn't. We were very lucky. Um, but yeah, food was something which really scared us. You know, we definitely knew how to pour a beer after running Oktoberfest, but um, we never made food. We'd always outsource that. So, so what's your learning there? I'm assuming you've got some good people around you because as you said off air, it's not your profession. You're not a chef. No. How did you get the formula right in the first place? Well, we're fortunate. Good friends of ours, they had a couple of successful Asian restaurants, one in down the road in um, Leaderville called Loki Chow House, one actually on Beaufort Street, Dainty Dowager. We actually approached them and for a while we were talking about outsourcing the food component and for them to just run that for us. And we were going through the motions, but liquor licensing sort of got in the way there and we, we couldn't actually get it to work for that reason. So in the end, we just had to do it ourselves. Mm. But um, they, they were a great sounding board. Owen and Terry Chua gave us a lot of good advice. And we, we knew a few other guys around town as well, uh, some chefs and that who also chipped in, giving us a bit of advice. Um, now you're eight weeks in advance for bookings. <laughs> and Perth has a bit of a fad effect, I find. Most people in Perth will give you a crack for a couple of months because they want to be there. They want to be seen to be there for the first couple of months. But if your offering is not that great, you'll die very quickly. How long have you had your place open now, especially through COVID, and you're still at that point where I've got to plan a couple of months ahead to get in? Yeah, look, that's one thing you, you spot on there. That, that's the one thing which really scared us about bricks and mortar. It's a great thing running an event because if it all of a sudden drops off, well, you just don't run it next year and you've got no fixed costs or very few fixed costs. Whereas if you jump in bricks and mortar, that thing needs to work for 20 years. But yeah, the, the old synagogue is, you know, we pinch ourselves every day how popular it still is now after three years, especially considering how many new places have opened up in Frio. Frio was really struggling when we first started there. It's now thriving. There's there's new venues opening up. Well, all some the would time. say that it's off the back of your success that other businesses have had the confidence that effect there, where if you bring the crowd, well, then you all start helping each other out. You create a bit of a, a critical mass. I definitely believe in agglomeration. You know, I always say there's a reason why car yards all go next to each other. It's because then people know if they want to go buy a car, they go to Scarborough Beach Road and walk up the road, and they can check out five or six car yards. Well entertainment precincts are a bit like that as well yeah we don't really see competitors as competitors oh, that's another reason to bring people past your building exactly yeah. and you know Freo we went in there directly across the roads the Norfolk Hotel it's been there for 100 years it's a successful venue I'm sure it they saw you as the a competitor area. that's for sure when it comes to the, the offering yeah. but at the same time you know, when you guys bring people in and people walk up and realise they can't get in because they had to make a booking two months ago, it probably helped them with a bit of the spillover as well. 100%. And we also weren't trying to do exactly the same. So, yes, if, if you have five or six Asian restaurants selling this exact same offering, well, yes, that's competition. But the Norfolk have a, you know, built a great business on locals and good quality. Coming down for a beer with, with your thongs on. Yeah, whereas we have a modern Asian restaurant, more of a bistro out the front and out the back, a pub, but 
a slightly newer modern pub out the back. It's not an old historical pub like the Norfolk. So it's a completely different offering. Things are a bit different for you these days and we'll talk about what these days looks like very soon. You've got the state government and I assume any location absolutely falling over themselves for you guys to be a part of their space. But back then I'm assuming the planning side of things for the city of Fremantle might have been a little more complicated than you thought. Planning wise was an interesting one. Having been in property, I've seen plenty of horror stories where people have things come out of left field and end up putting developments on ice and especially in heritage buildings yeah heritage was obviously a scary thing but um because i I guess we had that background drew's an engineer as well so from the engineering side he was able to ask all the right questions and satisfy ourselves there i was on the phone straight away before we bought the building to the state heritage office figuring out what were the issues and a lot of research into the whole thing was the city helpful to work the city was fantastic yeah the city of frio realized that that building was an eyesore on a major intersection coming into the city they were wanting to see something happen there they were happy that we're not building a contentious hotel development on the rear which was proposed and and we had approval for. They were very supportive. And yes, obviously, like all applications, we had a lot of hoops to jump through, but they helped us get through those hoops and um, actually quite a painless process in the end. Fast forward a couple of years, you're killing it at the synagogue. The fanfare around the brand is as big as it can get in Western Australia, I think. You've got a brand there now and you've applied the same formula as you had in Fremantle to Mount Lawley on a building that has been around for a long time that was empty and for sale for a long time. It was an eyesore, graffiti everywhere, and across the road from another pub that's been there forever. Was it a simply a case of plug and play in Mount Lawley with the Beaufort? Yeah, well, it ticked all the boxes. Beaufort Street's also a street where myself and my friends, when we were younger, we used to do a lot of pub crawls up and down, starting at the Brisbane probably ending up at some nightclub up the top. Another one of those streets where just strangely fell off a cliff about five years ago and we lost a lot of great venues along the way. A lot of great venues. Um, And everyone used to say it was because it was old money holding the venues that were not prepared to drop the rent to support the businesses that were there that were struggling a bit. We've not been in that situation, but... Well, that's the point. It has to be. You are not beholden at the synagogue or at the Beaufort to a landlord. You are the landlord. Yeah, and it's definitely been something which, yeah, from the start, we were scared about signing ourselves up in a lease situation. Also, obviously, seeing other people sign leases and then you run a business which does go well and then you get a rent review in five years' time where they crank the rent on you and then things drop off a little bit if you're not the flavour of the month anymore Mm. and then all of a sudden that's when the trouble hits and that's happened to a lot of guys well Um, you've de-risked yourself in that way by essentially betting on yourself you're not beholden to that rent but in order to build another fantastic venue that i was at on the weekend that has the same flavour of you know little pockets still quiet places to have a beer or to have food and you're always exploring the venue You've spent some significant capital, Ross, Mm. on putting this together. Can you talk to that for the listenership? I suppose a lot of things actually come down to gut feel and it just felt right. It felt like it was in the right spot. It felt like an opportunity. It was three sites next to each other, so we had a significant footprint there. And when you go through all the list of things you're looking for, it just felt right. And it felt something where we were all confident of just going, no, that's it, we'll commit to this and do it properly. The one difference, I guess, with the Beaufort was it wasn't a heritage-listed building we were working around. Um, but it was a noticeable it, building. People, it was. Had, Most people had been there before. Yeah. There's a car park out the front. You got rid of that. I think for us, looking at it, yes, people knew the 
Empire homeware site. Love the furniture store. The local community really wanted to see Beaufort Street thrive. And we thought, oh, well, look, if we did something which the local community could be proud of, then they would support this. So it was worth us doing this properly. Now, there were some risks involved in building such a purpose-built building. We knew that we had a building which could put a seven-level apartment development on it like is being done by barry bolton that's two doors down exactly so we, we knew we had that sort of site but we were building something out of the picture for a long time anyway mm. but we wanted to create something unique that will make it stand out for a long time from what other people can do because th- there's not too many opportunities like this on major roads no very much so and no. the point i'm getting to what i'm working towards is that i'm not interviewing a hospitality owner here I'm interviewing a property developer. Two times now in your track record, you have absolutely smashed it home on some serious property developments. And we're talking serious money as well that most people would never be in the space to be a part of. Most restaurant or pub owners or uh, leaseholders wouldn't have never and would never be in the space financially to, to manage. And you've gone and thrown down millions and millions of dollars backing yourself in not as a developer with a tenant that you hope you can attract from somewhere else but you are the owner-occupier here creating an asset that obviously would take a bank to back you in and believe in you as well. Does it get easier, obviously, after the synagogue to have someone go, yeah, I'll back this in? It definitely gets easier. You know, we've got a great relationship with the NAB and with a unique building like that, we somehow got them to agree to not have a quantitative surveyor on the job, which was great because I don't know how a quantitative surveyor would manage to put a number on what that was going to cost we entered into a cost plus agreement with the builder i mean even that in itself yes uh, both from a residential or commercial basis it's very rare you get a bank signing off on a cost plus arrangement yes it is risky but it's because one we wanted to build our buildings quickly we settled on that building in i believe it was january and within 14 months we had the doors open and you just can't do that if you're looking to get the documentation in place Mm. to run a successful tender process for someone and even to find a builder who's going to put their neck on the line. Well, every month that you delay, you're behind the eight ball on interest payments. Exactly. We had momentum as well, which we wanted to keep going. There were risks involved with that, you know, with the way the construction industry went. Uh, our cost blew out by millions on the Beaufort. But we made the decision to keep going and to keep spending the money because we were confident in the building. And has it been worth it? It has definitely been worth it, yeah. yeah it's been fantastic. Um, that's once again gone far better than I suppose you run your worst case your expected and your hopeful scenarios and that's exceeded all of those so we're very happy do you think that it is a lack of competition in that space do you think it is you've got the magic source the secret formula do you think it is again just providing something big enough to be able to scale is it the food it's similar drinks to other places in Perth you can get similar beers around Perth what is it that gets people down there every single day of the week I'm fortunate I've got a really good team um, running the venues we we sit down and we bounce ideas around but yeah it's a combination of making people say wow when they walk through the door so that's the building side so that's when we've got fantastic architects we work with and to come up with some great ideas and where Drew and I just say yeah go for it yep. you know, push the boundaries so trust your professionals yeah we also give people a lot of license to try and don't try to do things which you've done before try to do new things so the Beaufort the central staircase is built on the Escher staircase concept with which is the stairs to nowhere and when you walk through the Beaufort the staircase you can't just follow it straight up to the roof you've it stops at 
first level, then you've got to go find where it starts again. It's a bit of a rabbit route, Warren. Exactly. Obviously on purpose. It, and we did it's that sort little. of like the IKEA system where you have to look around the whole place before you get to where you want to be to. Exactly. And it makes people explore, makes people think this is a bit different. Sort of things like that all came together from the building side. And then from a food and beverage offering, well, people in Perth now are quite discerning. People understand food a lot more now. So we knew we had to have a great offering. So we're willing to pay top dollar for a great head chef. We searched the whole country and we, we found a guy, Sundu Kim, who's from the Lucas Group over in Melbourne. I don't know if you know the restaurant Chin Chin over there. They, they've started that. Incredibly successful operation over there. And yeah, Sundu agreed to move over here with his family, which we're very, very fortunate about. It was actually a whole story in itself. We got a phone call from WA Police saying the borders were going to close within a week. <laughs> so we called Sundu and said, listen, if you want to come you've got to come now and he packed his entire house up into his garage in boxes in two days jumped on a flight and we got an airbnb for him to quarantine in here and his next door neighbor loaded his whole house into a removal truck while he was in quarantine got him over here sunday he had a lot of lot of experience cooking modern asian food which is what we were going for again but he also had the ability to run a massive kitchen which could run the entire venue so you know, we can have to 500 600 diners at any one time between the pub sections and the restaurant and there's about up to 50 chefs i think he's got underneath him wow yeah sunday was just fantastic I so that's we, another episode so we had the right person dealing with staffing in, yeah. in a time like this yeah exactly let's look forward to what you're doing now it's well publicized you know, a couple of things from my understanding going on one state government's giving you their whole state budget to fix Yagan Square. And you're also having a look at what's going on at the old police station, I understand, as well in South Perth. Let's start with Yagan Square. Yeah. What a basket case that place has been since it was opened up. How are you going to fix it for West Australians to make that part of Perth a place to be again? Because it, it has been such a disappointment, hasn't it? No, it definitely has. And look, I think all the shortcomings have been talked about enough. Yeah, for us, the reason why we decided to go for it was the state government were very keen to put in the time and effort into turning it around. They were open to some pretty out there ideas. We said from the onset that we were not interested in just going into the market hall and trying to do something and make it work in there. If we were going to do this, we want permission to change the building, open it up and create something landmark status. And yeah, they, they went for it and they, they were keen to progress. Yes, they, they gave us 5.4 million to go towards it which i would have liked a bit more because <laughs> we're gonna have to put down a fair bit ourselves you got some big ideas yeah we, we're building a massive venue there um, well several venues can you give us a bit of a, an idea of what we can expect and, and when yeah so in the market hall is going to be a, a tap house we've figured out a way which we're going to have a glass cool room so the whole inner workings of the pub will be on show so you'll walk in you'll see that it'll be a, like a tap house concept a bit, bit like brewery or Beer hall, I guess someone's called it. I don't really like, like that term too much. That's probably better used at Oktoberfest. <laughs> but that'll be the inside portion. Then it'll flow out now into the outdoor area. So we've got a larger fresco area going in to the middle of Yagen Square over a couple of tiered areas there. There'll be a new bar out there. Be a great, unique place to have like such a large outdoor component in the middle of a city. So that, that was one thing which was quite interesting to us and something where we said, look, this is a bit of a deal breaker for us. We need outdoor space, which we got. And then... Which you don't have a lot of at your other two venues. No, not, not as big. Our venues are 
quite outdoor based. Um, so even the Beaufort's got that large retract- retractable roof, which opens up the majority of the building and the rooftop decks. But um, it is something like, you know, we're in Perth, we've got great climate, people like to be outdoors. So that was the, uh, one key part of Jagen. And then we wanted to create a link between the building and the outdoors. So our architects at MJA came up with this concept of this mezzanine level restaurant, which will go from inside the market hall and protrude out over the existing water feature and link out into that alfresco area. So we're going to put another restaurant in there. And then there's another big central staircase again, which will take you above the restaurant and we're going to build a two-level modern venue on top of Yagen Square, which will be probably the flagship venue. That'll give Yagen Square better visibility again from, what's it, William Street and Wellington Street. It'll also be great when the university is built because you'll get great views of interacting well, well, with that Well, that was facade. my next question. Are you relying on the university to bring the groundswell? Is it going to be something that caters for the student bringing you back to when you're at university years ago? Or... Is that just going to help? Probably the latter, more so going to help. I think the university for us will, one, complete that area in that the areas around that bus port there are all hoarded off now. Mm. And because of that vacant site... It's an eyesore. It's an eyesore and it also... It probably um, is a place where it's easy for homeless people to move in there and then the problems with those dark, unlit areas make it not such an attractive place for people to walk through at night. Mm. So once that university is there, that whole area is going to be lit up like a Christmas tree. There won't be these little pockets around the place anymore. So I think that will be a real positive thing for the safety aspect of the area. The university is only going to be finished a couple of years after we've finished and so, opened the doors. And w- so that's the, when can we expect to <coughs> have, a, have a beer at... Yagen Square again. This stage, we're hoping around November, so it'll be a quick build again. Another one where we're relying on our builder to pull out all the stops. And then how that interacts with ECU, well, we'll have all the construction workers across the road for a couple of years. I'm told there's a few thousand of them, so I'm sure they'll be thirsty after a day's work. Are you going to be the owner of this asset or will you be leasing it out? This is our first leasehold asset. How does that sit with you as a property person these days? Something which is not an ideal situation for us but the reason for it was a lot of what we do comes down to uniqueness of the opportunity so we looked at this asset in the middle of a cbd they were willing to give us a 30-year lease i'm assuming that they were on their knees name your terms and we'll move forward it was a competitive tender process but what we rather did was we put it on a um, a percentage base turnover rent so if we do really well well the government gets their money back very quickly but if it doesn't do that well well we protect it as well to some degree so there's the upside there if it goes really well but um, there's some protections on the downside so that that's what we weighed up and i think it was it was a great opportunity for us to you know if we could kick a goal and and help turn this area around it must feel good ross to be in a position where everyone is applauding your decision to come in everyone is nearly grateful for you guys to come and bring your brand to the middle of the city i'm assuming the state government whilst it's a competitive bid always were hoping you guys would get involved to be in that position in western australia you must be pinching yourself oh we certainly are pinching ourselves and very grateful but i suppose at the same time with that comes a lot of responsibility and um, expectation expectation. that the next one's going to be as good or better than the last one 
and we realise you're probably only as good as your <laughs> your last development, and it's going to be hard to kick goals as much as we've hit with the the previous two. Well, that's the thing. You're a property person, a property developer these days, and most property developers can get on and do their work with not many people taking a lot of notice. You're in the spotlight with everything you do these days. And the next one you've got on the list, which is obviously, I'm assuming, building towards the timeline of the Civic Heart development as well, is the police station. What's going to happen there? Yeah, so the police station's a bit smaller than the rest, but the police station's extra special in that Drew and I are South Perth locals, so we had a little bit of extra motivation to create a good little local for us as well. Did they tap you on the shoulder? Uh, No, we actually approached them. Wow. We've driven past that site for a lot. A long time. We both play golf down the road at Royal Perth. I myself not very well, but (laughs) (laughs) most people (laughs) are. That's why I need a beer after golf. (laughs) But once again, heritage listed property was really interesting to us. Civic Arts, just an incredible apartment building, which I'm really looking forward to seeing finished. Well, Um, it creates the critical mass of people, doesn't it? As long as you've got an adequate offering downstairs, you've got enough people upstairs to keep that place busy. Surely. Yeah. Look, it's got to help. In South Perth, there's just not that many opportunities to build more food and beverage offerings. Again, just like the old synagogue, just Mm. like the Beaufort, just like in Yagan Square as well, you've got a mainstay food and beverage offering across the road from you at the Windsor. Yeah, exactly. We've spent a lot of time at the Windsor over the years. Uh, Drew actually worked at the Windsor, one of his first university jobs. So he used to go in there a bit. It ticks all those boxes again from that side. It doesn't have the massive upside of the big venues of the scale so it'll be a bit of a slower longer burn but what makes up for then is uh, it doesn't have the opportunity for a lot of competition for us pretty hard to create something unique inside an apartment building quite often they're quite sanitized aren't they exactly quite square geometric boxes you're working with a a box already whereas if you've got an outdoor venue and a standalone venue You've got a bit more flexibility. And the heritage component again. Exactly, yeah. So, When is that going to be ready? Could be ready earlier, but we, we, we're just going to wait for Civic Heart to be finished. So it's probably looking March, April 24. With a bit of luck, we'll start digging our basement out end of January. Look, there's a lot of excitement there. Before you leave, can I ask anything else possibly on the go? And if an opportunity popped up tomorrow, would there be an, a place that you'd really like to be operating in, in terms of precincts in WA? We definitely are looking. Our plans are also to coincide with the opening of South Perth when we've got the four venues. We're going to set up a central head office because our our central team now is growing and we intend to get that head office team big enough to make it easier to keep rolling out new venues. So get some critical mass in your staff as well. Yeah. We're looking at a few other opportunities. At this stage, we're looking for opportunities which are in different catchment areas to the ones that we're already operating. You know, there's been quite a lot of great buildings coming for sale in Fremantle, but we've already got a pretty good asset in Fremantle, so it's you know, it's a little bit hard to open up another one mm. <laughs> right on its doorstep. So for us yeah, now, it's about driving around Perth, finding different areas, different catchments, seeing if we see any places where we think the local area would support a development, and then finding a, a plan for a development which will suit that catchment not going to go build a Beaufort anywhere yeah. mm. it's got to have the right catchment well, I reckon somewhere up near Scarborough would be uh, would be an opportunity for it. there's uh, a lot of people that like going there there's a couple of pubs doing pretty well around there if, so, so if someone wants to sell me a good site <laughs> in Scarborough <laughs> I'm definitely I can have my number <laughs> well you heard it first everyone if you're anywhere up on the northern beaches where I'm sure there is a big catchment of 
local beer drinkers and foodies and you're looking to have the golden goose of in my words food and beverage hospitality in western australia take over then uh, give him a call i'm sure you'll find his number somewhere ross Trenner, thank you so much for your story with drew flanagan next to you the whole way nocturnal has been a, a fantastic operator when it comes to events but also now moving into that property space it's not the usual episode we do but i've found it to be a fantastic story that so many people would would listen all the way through on we look forward to seeing more venues popping up around wa because bloody hell we need them thanks for having me appreciate it thank you for listening to another episode of the perth property show If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!